It has been a very long day, I'm sure, for most of you, especially those who are new, and you'll appreciate the problem of getting so much material and not having time to digest it. I can only hope that some of it will remain and lead you to make resolutions for the retreat. St. Ignatius always set down a kind of very short repetition each day so that the matter would come back to us. So today we thought first about one step enough for me, how that would be true in the life of St. Paul or Cardinal Newman himself or Mother Teresa or indeed to you and me linked, as Cardinal Newman did, with the word most sure in all his ways. If you are contemplatively minded in prayer, then the word sure, all alone, would keep you going for a day. It's a sort of security that's true. You don't really need to come to all the conferences if you can put yourself in God's presence. We thought today about holiness being not a wet virtue, whether Puritan or Catholic, but a frame of mind. And we did think about the boy who said he'd go to the orchard and didn't go, and he had a frame of mind which was disastrous. He promised his father and then did nothing more about it. He didn't change his mind, it was always fixed on himself. We thought about heaven being God's w world, and if we don't know the language, we won't be able to be happy there. We've got the example of Mark Twain's unhappy fisherman, or boatman, from San Francisco. And then we thought about the computer, do it, because that one phrase, like one step, and do it, those are the kind of words that make the retreat come back. I ended with, you must serve God or mammon, you can't serve both. Anything that divides, division, coming from the prefix dis, meaning two, is unhappy. And if you're a double-minded person, serving God and mammon, you'll come to despise one and love the other. So you might like to examine your consciences on that matter, especially giving attention to how you behaved and what you felt when gas was short about two years ago. There you really did see daily communicants, Knight of Columbus and God knows what, in their proper setting. I was with a sister in a car in Washington. We waited hours in line to get to the pump, and as we got there, the man put up clothes. This sister came up with an oath that would have scandalized St. Teresa of Avila. <laughs> and she said to me in a feverish heat, if I had a revolver, I would shoot him. And I believe one or two Catholics did shoot the men. Once your real interests are challenged, like gas, then it's extraordinary how like the Pharisees we look. So therefore, it's a good, it's a good example. I remember in the war with rationing. There you suddenly saw the people who were totally selfish and those who were totally unselfish. So much, therefore, for today's retreat, and we move on tomorrow to another subject. Before we do that, it's worth bearing in mind, tomorrow we have confessions. Uh, they're voluntary, you don't have to go to a confession in a retreat, and indeed some of you may have 
uh, your own confessor at home, and you may have been to confession just recently. Confession is, of course, not only a great sacrament, but it is a great easement for those of us who in our hearts know we are Pharisees. We may not have anything to say, but just coming into the confessional is a tremendous joy. You come out happy. And I've been struck in the last year or two, the number of people who've been to talk to me, not in confession, who have been away from the sacrament for 10 years because some stupid priest 10 years ago told them, oh, it was all out of date now. There was a period, the period of the campus unrest and the Democratic Convention of Chicago and the Vietnam War, when even the church went a little potty. And so you suddenly find if you, that if you, some people fell right away or were told it wasn't needed or don't listen to them because it's a great sacrament. It isn't only what the church says, uh, but even the reformers, um, Luther for one and Calvin for another, they all insisted on the value of confession. No, they didn't practice it. We're the only church today, except the Greek church, that has confession. William James, your great psychiatrist and psychologist, a wonderful man, and not a Catholic, he put down how sad it was that only Catholics go to confession and that uh, the other Anglo-Saxon tribes seem to think that they've got God squares. So we ought to be pleased about confession. I must admit openly to you, I go uh, not as often as I used to because we were brought up we ought to go every two weeks or one week at one time. I don't anymore feel that. When you get to my age, I say, and give retreats all day, you really would be almost have to tell lies to go to confession to make up a sin or two. My dear mother used to make up sins to cheer the priests up. <laughs> no, I think that confession, you've got to, but I think we ought to have a fixed rule because again, it's one of those things that do it. If you, every time you put it off, it gets more difficult, even though you've nothing to say. And, I mean, it doesn't much matter what you say. When I first heard confessions in London, I remember I didn't understand a word of what anyone said. When I got out at the end, I found a notice saying confessions heard in Flemish. God knows what have happened to all those poor chaps from Belgium. I absolved them all splendidly, I thought. <laughs> there was an army chaplain here from your army two weeks ago who told me that in England during the war, he had a notice on the confession, or saw a notice saying, confessions in English, American understood. <laughs> no, one goes to confession. Of course, they've messed around a bit today. I don't care for this reconciliation room. I don't like the word reconciliation. It means that both sides give way a little. This is what Kissinger was always doing, going to the Middle East to reconcile uh, the Israel Prime Minister with Sadat and they tampered with the borders a bit and then came away as bad as they started. No, if your boy came up to you and said, Daddy, let's be reconciled, I'd clip him over the ear. I'd say, kneel down and say you're sorry first. <laughs> this reconciliation sounds an awfully wishy-washy thing. Cardinal Newman says that. How many undergraduates and people are sorry for their sins? Why? Because they made a fool of themselves. 
He mentions the case of a man who said, oh, I could kick myself. That's not sorrow. That's simply a shame that you've lost caste. With God, you've got to say to him, you're sorry. <coughs> Mr. C.S. Lewis um, said, I remember going to his lectures often at Oxford, he said that he felt your body wanted to be sorry with your soul and that you ought to kneel down to get absolution. Now that's gone out, I don't worry, and if you don't kneel down, doesn't scare me now. I kneel down, it upsets the poor priest no end. He kneels down too, <laughs> we don't know who's going to confession by the end. <laughs> but um, no, I think you, your body does want to be sorry, and I think it's a tremendous gesture to, um, to run the confession with great, great seriousness. People don't go to confession today, but they all love going. That's why they go to the psychiatrist. Dr. Tournier, who's a marvelous Calvinist psychiatrist, most spiritual, he says that half the people that come to him with nervous breakdowns, depression, and these things, their real battle is with God. And I'm inclined to think there's a lot of truth in that. Not that we've committed great sins, but we are not honest and that you really do need, not what you say to the priest, that doesn't matter a hoot, it's examining your conscience to be sure that you are being, that you've got self-knowledge, and whether you, to consider whether you murmur in your hearts, whether you um, put burdens on others like the Pharisees did, whether you use expediency, all these words describe what the Bible shows us in all those different characters we thought about today. I remember how people love confession, that you've only got to go to a bar and see what a martini will do. I've seen a person after two martinis crying for their sins, pouring out their woes. And one man said to me, once wasn't here, I think it was in St. Louis, it would be, um, he said, if only you put a bottle of whiskey at the head of the line, um, I'd make a good confession. And I said, well, you put another half on my side and we'll have a double header because... <laughs> <laughs> no, so the church has changed things, not much for men. In the old days, your soldiers in the war, uh, people went to confession with no box, they came into the sacristy and went to confession out loud, didn't care whether people heard. I don't think it's changed for us, it's the women that's the trouble. And now, of course, in the old days, the old confessional boxes used to get right out of oxygen after a while. So people didn't stay very long, but now there's plenty of oxygen, and you can't get anyone out. And then you suddenly heard a revolver shot, and suddenly in the lines killed themselves. <laughs> Just waiting. So in a way, I wish we had, like the supermarket, one channel for those who bought very little. <laughs> At any rate, it is a great moment in the retreat, and for many of us, it's a wonderful thing that we go to confession at least once a year when we come on retreat. That's an enormous achievement. At least it's done. You've done it. And God sees the, your frame of mind that you're sorry. So we ought to examine our conscience today. There's a talk less tomorrow, and confessions are, I think, uh, in place of the second talk. And now we'll end our meditation for tonight very shortly. I want to speak just for a minute about death. I did mention it before, 
but we oughtn't to leave it out, immortality of the soul. Cardinal Newman gives us as our text, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? That was the famous question that Ignatius put to Francis Xavier at Paris University, which eventually converted St. Francis to go off to India. They've changed the translation a little, you'll find, in various others. The Jerusalem Bible says instead of um, the loss of his own soul, they say the ruin of his life. I don't quite know what, how that improves. And the New English says at the cost of his true self. They're also frightened of saying soul. But at any rate, it's fairly clear that we ought to think just for one minute about our fate when this life ends. And Cardinal Newman makes two very simple points which are worth thinking of, the difference between pagans and Christians. And he says here, I read it out his own words, the meaning of a future life for pagans then and now, religion was about enough for someone going to live for 70 or 80 years. They had profane worship, gaudy processions, an indulgent creed, easy observance, sensual festivities, childish extravagances, eat, drink, and be happy was their motto. They never liked to think what would happen when they passed on. And that's very true if you read Marcus Aurelius, I wrote his little life at the back of my book. He was a great and holy man and emperor. He came at the end to realize that when he left the stage, he would be going to God. But most of the pagans never had that. They knew that they didn't end death, but they didn't know where they went. They made up all those stories of crossing the river Styx and the dog with seven heads. The Egyptians took um, a book of questions and answers with them for the last judgment so they could look up what they had to say and get past. The Huns and the Indians, they all vaguely knew that life wouldn't end, but they never liked to think about it. So their religion was all based on a kind of virtuosity, kind of liturgy, paraliturgy, that satisfied something in them while they were on earth. We, on the other hand, we can say eat, drink and be merry, but then we have to say, but after that, the judgment. That we have to believe that we're going to be judged. And the sad thing is that the difference is so great, and the Romans, when they hated the Christians, it was for that that they couldn't stand our religion where God came into our rooms, where we prayed all day, and where we would have to answer for our lives. The Romans thought that completely a feat, a kind of superstition. It's part of the reason of the persecution. So therefore, as Newman says, we could say after this the judgment, but then sadly enough, after that we often look just like pagans. We drink as much, uh, we tell the same sort of stories, we make money in the same way. Uh, we, some of us cheat, some don't. Uh, uh, do we look any different? And that's a question only you and I can answer for ourselves. Am I reflecting a pagan world, though I, my beliefs are different? Then Newman goes on to a marvelous thing about children. And he says, that it, which is quite true, and I'm sure you can verify it, if, and that is, to a child, this world is everything. 
we see and feel that we could not live or go forward without the aid of men. A child has no idea of his separate existence. A child has really no idea of his soul. And I've seen that, you must have, with your own children. The what makes me laugh is that I saw at Heathrow, it was a very tragic state in a way, a little child that got lost at the airport. This little boy of four couldn't find his parents. And he went so red in the face and was so screaming and tragic situation, and the people on the amplifying system were calling desperately because the baby might almost have burst if its mother and father hadn't come. It had never been on its own. It only knew this world. Well, the mother came at last, thank gracious, but the poor little child, it was the most terrifying thing to see a baby lost. It hadn't got to that age where it could suddenly begin to stand on its own. About the age of eight, children begin to come to the use of reason. And then they suddenly begin, it always starts with death. Usually, as Cardinal Newman's one, or several Thomas More mentions it, the death of a pet, be it a canary or whatever it is, or a cat or a hamster, that is always the first moment when children suddenly begin to sense a strange new experience. Then after that, it's the death of somebody dear to you. Cardinal Newman has a marvellous letter when he, his father died, the first dead body he'd seen. Some of you would recall the same. Some of you saw many dead people in the war. But you can never get away from the fact that a corpse is an extraordinarily eerie thing. You suddenly begin to realise that this world is leaving you. And Cardinal Newman makes much of that, the first stirrings within us that this world is leaving. Health, importance, money, etc. begin to go. Then I find what's so extraordinary is that after a while you can't keep up with the world anymore. It's the great liberation that comes in old age, where suddenly you no longer can keep up with the Joneses. They're too young and they're too sporty and they're so miles ahead, so you pack up. You lose ambition. There was a day when I knew every person who played every game. But now I, I'm down to poor old Jack Nicklaus is about the only chap I know now. All these funny chaps in the open, I just get, I fall asleep. Don't care the hell what they do. <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. I remember Bobby Orr in the ice hockey. I remember when, now that he seems to have gone, my life is much freer. I don't have to watch all those Stanley Cup things. Then there was Bobby Hull, I remember him. And then when Gomer Pyle left the television, uh, well then, since then, I've never laughed. <laughs> you suddenly find it's all going. And when you see plays on television and all the names of the actors and things, you cut the ball out. In the old days, I do the ball. It's a glorious moment when you can't keep up with the Joneses. And so you sit back with all your buttons open and have a real free time. And all of a sudden, it's a joy to be old, just to be free of all the rubbish. Now, Newman has a very good two points. He borrowed it. He and all the men of his time were influenced by it. This extraordinary book uh, was called The Analogy of Religion by Dr. Joseph Butler. Joseph Butler was the Anglican Bishop of Durham about the time of George Washington. 
and he wrote a book which was required reading in all the universities of Europe for a hundred years. And Butler did a tremendously clever thing based on reason alone, what do we know about death, immortality? What do we know about the chances of life after death? And by reason alone, they work it out from the analogy of nature, from the analogy of animals that start as worms and turn into butterflies, from all the different patterns we have, it's 80% certain that you will go on. There's 20% doubt, 80 to 1, that after the death, you'll still be there. Do you remember poor old Hamlet, to be or not to be, this is what scared him. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all. He wanted to commit suicide, but if you do, you, are, will, are you sure you won't be talking to yourself on the other side of the grave with your throat cut? Well, he did. Eventually, he risked it. And now you've got these terrible teenage groups of, with the death wish, which is revolting. How sick our society is when teenagers are thinking of killing themselves. Well, the reason tells us they'll go on. One of the main reasons is that the doctors can't do much about it. After all, I can practically get rid of the whole of my body and still be me. I'm longing to be like Captain Hook and have a hook here instead of my arm. In the, in the lines, in the shops, it would do marvels. <laughs> you can have a wooden leg. You can have a false leg. A poor lady who's got to have her leg off with diabetes uh, was telling me how the doctor, after going round the hospital, came back to console her and said to her, you know, that leg isn't yours anymore now. It isn't part of you. So bang goes that. I've known a chap with half his stomach out eating a hell of a good meal. Doing splendidly, better than he ever did when he had the whole stomach. Then you can have transfusions of blood, and then you've got your dentures and your glasses, and you can get a wig. It's an extraordinary thing. You can practically have half your body removed, but you can still make a retreat and go to confession. And the doctors, for all they know, when they, when they see you breathe your last, they don't know. They can't argue about it. And the Hindus and all that. The chances are you're so much yourself, even with half your body gone, uh, that um, th the likelihood is that you, your, your soul, is not going to end. So the first point that Newman makes is himself that it, for the atheists, your friends, it's about 80% certain that they'll be living after death. There's three, little, little, 20% we don't know. It's, it's probable. And it's a, such a probability that they uh, would be wise to take note of it. And for you and me, with faith, it's 100% certain. But then Newman makes the splendid point, if it's only 80% certain that there's life after death, it's 100% certain that this world is going to leave me. I've yet to meet anyone who says that he doesn't think he'll die. I think Mrs. Eddy had a telephone in the cas casket with her in case people wanted to give her a ring. I don't know if anyone did. I, they might in Boston. But, the strange thing is, otherwise, I, you never meet any religion. We've got very crazy messiahs come from California. They say every conceivable bit of rubbish, but no messiah has ever appeared yet saying that you're not going to die. So you sit down and you sit, look to yourself, suddenly that the world is going to leave you. It's leaving me already. It's leaving some of you. We've got to that age where it's gradually vanishing. And it's an extraordinary experience to find you've got very few friends left 
and yet you're perfectly happy, that all of a sudden uh, you're quite content, old age is, has a great advantage, ambition's gone, all the silly things that we did, and we're going to all of us move along that way. Therefore, not so very long ahead, and we will have taken the great step. And it's when you're thinking of that, that then you realize how beautifully our Lord does it, that he substitutes other things as the joys of your youth begin to disappear. It's wonderful how our Lord does that. St. Bernard said that it's like when a baby has a knife in its hand, the mother, in order to get the knife out of his hand, holds a candy out, and the baby is so concerned with the candy, he lets go the knife. So I find, I'm sure you do, that you don't eat candies anymore now, or your dentures fly out. So that's gone, I don't miss them. And then you suddenly find that you can't walk so fast, then you can only see with one eye, then you find that you're bald, and that's a relief. I'm just I'm heading up for that, that's glorious. And then when you've got all your teeth out, I wish I'd been born with false teeth, that would have saved me a lot of money. The dentist wouldn't like it. But you suddenly find that you go on. And then you get the certainty, which is so marvellous, yes, death is not the end. But then what is the end? And the end is God. And so you adore God because uh, that is the, um, the final act that you and I have to do. We have to say to God, I, I'm going to you and you're going to judge me. Newman has a very powerful sentence at the end of it all. Would you dare, when you meet God, to plead diminished responsibility. God might say to me, I understood in that situation you couldn't do anything otherwise, but I wouldn't like in my life, it would be a denial of myself to say to God that I was not responsible for the choices I made. Some of them were very bad, some of them were made out of ignorance, but I was my own master when I chose those things. And then you make an act of contrition expressing your total sorrow to our blessed Lord. So we'll end the retreat on that note for tonight, and then tomorrow we'll go on to think about the incarnation and how God became a man.